as we continue uh, journeying through the hymn book of Israel, as we look at, uh, at the Psalms tonight, I just want to remind us as we work our way through that kind of a, I don't know, a hidden topic as we work our way through the Psalms is life is hard. Everybody okay with that? Anybody not know that to be true? Come see me afterwards, I'll tell you some stories. Life is hard, but the second part of it is God is good. And we we don't always have all the answers. Um, I was uh, had some, some counseling, uh, I remember earlier this week or end of last week, with... Uh, uh, a couple who had has lost their baby, uh, one year old, and uh, struggling with the whys. And and there's you know a certain amount of blaming going on, trying to figure out what happened and why did it happen that way. And the reality is, even if you had all the whys, you think that's going to take the pain in your heart away? Even if you know, if God came down and He explained it all to you, the hurt's still there. It's not the whys that we need that will help us move beyond the hurt. It's the who. And at the end of the day, we're still challenged. And if you watch the psalmist do it over and over again. I mean, by the time we get to the end of the psalms, we're, we will have seen it 150 times. The idea that my problem is big and hard and difficult, and God is bigger, and He loves me, and He cares about me, so I'm going to trust Him. And... That's the key to overcoming our hurt. The wise, they won't help. That's right. That's why you need to stay. So when we, when we look and we work our way through the Psalms and we look at the things that uh, the psalmist challenges us with, that's kind of the underlying concept as we work our way through. Life is hard. Hard things are going to happen. Things we don't understand. <laughs> and and maybe we never will. But God is always good. In it all. He will give us the strength we need to walk the road He's asking us to walk. Whatever that road is. And we look at uh, Psalm 14. Again, a, a Psalm of David as we look it begins with a, a phrase we're familiar with. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. I heard that before. You guys heard that somewhere before? The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. The, <laughs> the word for fool here is the word Nabal. There's three different words for fool in the Hebrew. Um, I won't bore you too much with that. But the word Nabal is the worst of them all. It is the... The fool who is a fool, not because he's not smart enough to figure it out, but simply because he is 
has, is or has a moral problem, not a mental problem. His moral problem is his real problem. Look, he, he goes on to define that for us in verse 1. The fool said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Now, keep in mind, as we work our way through this, who's he talking about? Who's the none? Refer back to. Now, while we can make a case for there is none who does good, we'll see that in a moment, he's specifically talking about the fools, the nabals, the people who have a moral problem that causes them to do really dumb things, who are full of corruption, who do abominable things, and there are none of those who does good. They're not doing good. He says in verse 2, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. Now he's talking about everybody. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men. That's all of us, right? We all came from man. The only one who didn't come from man is Jesus. He came from woman. But otherwise, we're all fit under that category, right? Children of men. To see if there are any who understand or who seek God. And we struggle sometimes over this concept. So, so maybe we can, we can uh, put the concept to rest. The idea of seeking God isn't the idea of looking for something out there somewhere. Uh, some higher power. The idea of seeking God is is uh, actively looking to stand before His face. To be in His presence. Apart from God intervening in our life, we don't do that naturally. There are none who seek God. God sought us. He sent His Son. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, right? We're, We're not confused about that. God took the first step. To present Himself to us. And our response then afterwards is to seek to be in His presence. And that's what He's saying. The Lord looks down. You have the fool who doesn't want anything to do with God because of a moral issue in his life. But you have all the world who doesn't seek after God except that God seek after them first. The Bible doesn't tell us that Abraham was wandering around in the desert looking for God. What does the Bible tell us? That God spoke to Abraham and said, come with me. And so Abraham came. You get God sought him first. All the way through, throughout Scripture, God always makes the first move toward us. And then our response, all our moves are responses to that. They have all turned aside. We read this in Romans. If you remember Romans about chapter 3. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Double negative in the Hebrews, an emphatic statement that there is nothing good in us. Nothing good in man. We talked about it when we went through Romans. We're broken. Right? We're corrupt. We are guilty before a holy and and just God. So here the psalmist is calling out. He begins in verse 1 focusing on the fool. And then he turns from the fool to, to all of humanity. In verse 4 he says, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread? He's talking about the abuse 
of the weak. So you have the fool says in his heart there's no God. You have everybody on earth, no, nobody's seeking after God. And these people, these the lost, these the wicked, these the broken, they abuse the weak who eat at my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. There they are in great fear for God is with the generation of the righteous. In verse 6, they abuse the poor. You shame the counsel of the poor. But the Lord is His refuge. In both cases, the weak and the poor, the Scripture goes on to tell us that God is with them. That God watches out for the poor. That God watches out for the weak. Sometimes we look at the world and we say, man, I've got to do something about this. Because if I don't do something about this, then... Who's going to look out for me? I'm just the poor. I'm just the weak. The psalmist said, the fool, he's morally challenged and he he hates God. And the rest of the world's not looking after God. And when they abuse the weak, God says, I'm here still. And when they abuse the poor, God says, they are or I am their refuge. See, the, sometimes the hard thing to do is look at a corrupt world that's sideways and does corrupt things and recognize that God didn't fall asleep and lose you in the middle of the night. He's still there. But we need to learn to acknowledge that there are paths God calls us to walk that are hard. And you have to walk them. You don't get to say, I, I withdraw. I withdraw from walking the path God gave me. You can't win that battle. You quit a hundred times, you'll find yourself walking the same road again. Over and over, going through the same or similar struggles. So what's the key? The key is to learn I can't go around it, and I can't fly over it, and I can't dig under it. i got to go through it. The psalmist is going to tell us that in, in chapter 23, Right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The strength to walk the walk God's given you specifically comes from Him. Though all the world look corrupt and there's no help anywhere, God's still with you. God is still watching. God is still moving. God is still caring. He says that for us. In verse 7, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of His people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. When he says the Lord bring back the captivity of His people, he's not talking about a specific captivity. In fact, at the time it's written, they hadn't been in captivity. What's he talking about? That God would utterly change their fortunes. That there would be a radical change in their life. So what's he saying? He's saying, oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. That God will radically change the direction that our life is going. You ever feel that way? Oh, God, radically change the direction of my life. Because around me, there's the fool in his moral decline. And there are the rest of the world who have who are not seeking after God, and the abuse of the weak, and the abuse of the poor, but all the while, God is with the generation of the righteous. 
God has a left. And so we look to the Lord with hope that tomorrow's the day He leads us out of captivity. Everything radically changes. And we live our life in the constant hope of God's radical change in our life. In the New Testament, he put it this way, that we would live our life constantly looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tomorrow's the day we'll see Him. Tomorrow's the day we'll see Him. That that is our great hope that propels us through the struggles in life, the hard parts of life. That's the, the focus, especially as we look at Psalm 14. As we now move into Psalm 15. In Psalm 15, again, we have a Psalm of David. Um, as we look at this Psalm, I just want us to, to understand, this is not a prescription for being saved, but how a saved people ought to live. This is an example of Psalm 15, of what, it, what we ought to look like as we follow God through that valley of the shadow of death, through the difficult things that we walk through in life. So it begins with a question and an answer, like a catechism. The, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, often do things like this. In fact, if you read Paul, you see it all the time, right? Well, um, uh, I, I just lost it. There's like 20 of them in Romans. I think I could pull one. So shall we sin that, that grace may abound? Certainly not. How can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Question, answer. Question, Answer. You've seen Paul do that in Romans? It's, a, it's, a, it's called a, like a Hebrew catechism. Question and answer. Psalm 15 begins that way with the, with the question, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who can live in your tent, God? Who may dwell in your holy hill? In your, on, the, on the temple mount or in the tabernacle? Who, God, can be in your presence? We want to simplify it. Who can be... In your presence. And then he's going to lay it out. He who walks uprightly. The one who walks. That word uprightly means in the Hebrew means pure. One who walks in purity. His manner of life. His manner of life. And works righteousness. And speaks the truth in his heart. So he begins positively. He who walks he who works, he who speaks. Walk is the manner of life. So your manner of life is righteousness. And then you have two things. His works or deeds and, and uh, his, uh, his voice. He speaks. So you have word and deed becoming one. Right? His word and his deed. What's on the inside is coming out on the outside. He's a truthful person. Christ lives inside, He's visible on the outside. He says He follows God, you, the power to do so is on the inside, we see evidence of it on the outside. Where word and deed becomes one, you will have a manner of life that is righteous. Following after God. He who, now he looks at a couple of negatives, he who does not backbite or slander or gossip, <laughs> doesn't talk about his neighbor or somebody else in the church, or have to talk about other things that are going on. That's not what he does. He doesn't, uh, nor does he, um, nor does evil 
to his neighbor. That word evil literally means he doesn't do harm to his neighbor. He doesn't do something that's going to be harmful uh, to those who are around him. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In other words, nor does he take his disgrace and his shame and wave it. This is my friend's disgrace. Let me wave it for you. Or here's my friend's shame. Let me wave that for you. That's not descriptive of the man who's in the presence of God. What is descriptive? The manner of his life is righteous. His word and his deeds have become one, truthful. He speaks truthfully. He acts truthfully. He walks in righteousness. This is the example that he's laying out for us, for someone who is following the Lord. In whose eyes, this this person in the presence of God, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. He he carries that idea. We've sung it in a few songs. The idea that that what breaks God's heart breaks my heart. That what God hates, I hate. I'm not making excuses for evil or vile people. That if they are in a place or a thing or a, 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 a something that God hates, then they're outside. They're outside. In fact, he brings a strong word of contrast. In his eyes, a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He gives honor to those whose life is that of following God. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So this is it. He honors those who are in the house of the Lord. He walks righteously. His words and deeds have become one. And if he makes a vow and it costs him more, he doesn't change his vow. If he promises to do something for somebody and that promise ends up costing him more, costing him too much, he's losing his shirt on the deal, he doesn't go back. He swears to his own hurt and and then holds it up. He stands by his word, the thing that he has promised. And verse 5, He who does not put out his money at usury... In Deuteronomy, we're told that it was against the law of Israel to charge interest to your brother. That's not your birth brother. That's your national brother. Uh, uh, Another Israelite. You couldn't charge him interest. You could loan him money, that's up to you. But you couldn't charge him interest. So he says, this guy who's in the presence of God, he's he's not loaning his brother money and charging him interest. He's not making a promise to somebody that ends up costing him more than he thought it was going to and backing out of it. No, he he stands by his promise even though it costs him. He's walking in righteousness. His word and truth, uh, his words and deeds become one. Walking in truth and righteousness. He His heart breaks for what breaks God's heart. He hates what God hates. He's following the example and directions of the Lord. Nor will he take a bribe against the innocent. He can't be bought. He can't be bought to turn on somebody else. He's standing where he needs to stand. Listen to what it says lastly. He who does these things shall never be moved. One of the struggles that we have in uh, examining the Word today is we have, um, and rightly so, uh, a great emphasis on on, uh, grace. Everything, our salvation, is all God-bought. 
But that's not the end of the story. That's like only reading part of the Bible and then rejecting the rest. Because James tells us over and over again, look, your words are cheap. The truth of your words is seen in your deeds. What you do. If I say with my mouth, I love Jesus, He's my treasure, but I am living constantly in sin, the challenge is, the treasure is not Jesus, your treasure is your sin. You are deceiving yourself. Over and over again, the Lord says, do not deceive yourself. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I ask you to do? If I'm your Lord, you guys understand the word Lord. It's, it's, it's Adonai. It means master. If you're calling me your master, but you don't do what I say, I'm not your master. You cannot divorce the two. The, the, the deeds we do didn't save us. Jesus Christ came out of heaven and saved us. It's all His work. He does it all. And when I say I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He's my treasure, then that is evident in my life by what I do. Does that make sense? It's not the other way. What I do doesn't earn me faith. My faith is seen in what I do. And that's what He's saying in all all of Psalm 15. It's not how do I get saved. It's what's the example of somebody who is. It's how they walk. Here's what we do. We go... Well, what if somebody, well, what if somebody this and did that and then what? I don't know. What do you need to know that for? The Bible says if a brother is in sin, man, get the brother out of sin. Not comfort yourself with the possibility that he's still saved or that he was saved in the beginning. It doesn't say comfort yourself with the idea that that Jesus is able to save us from the uttermost, absolutely able to save us from the uttermost. But if that salvation is true and accurate, then I cannot be satisfied in a life of sin. Can't be satisfied there. So what do we do? All the things that we don't want to do. The Bible says, go to your brother and say, are you my brother? Yeah. Well, the Bible says, this is not... The, the conduct of a brother. Perhaps our brother repents and changes his direction. Or, we find out he's not a brother after all. Both are vital information to know, isn't it? If he's not my brother, then I need to be working towards salvation, right? Instead of busting his chops about his sin. He don't know it's his sin because he's never been saved. He doesn't understand or recognize sin in his life. There can be... No confession without repentance. No confession without repentance. There must be repentance. And that's that's the call of the psalmist in 15. He who does these things, he won't be moved. Is it the doing the things that makes him immovable? Nope. The doing the things is evidence of the faith that's in his life. And the faith is what makes him immovable. But the faith is real. Does that make sense? The faith is alive. It's true. Then we move on. Psalm 16. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. 
preserve me. The word is shamar. It means guard me or watch over me. Take care of me. For in you I put my trust. Or some of our Bibles say, for in you I take my refuge. It's, it's all the, my refuge, my trust, it's all the same idea. I'm in you. Take care of me, I'm in you. God, watch out for me because I'm in you. I'm choosing you. I'm choosing you as my greatest treasure. You are the thing I'm, I'm clinging to, that I'm holding to. Not the stuff I can have or the things I can get, but you. And as we work our way through Psalm 16, this is a personal uh, cry out, uh, praising God for His covering, His protection, His watching out. And you're going to notice it's personal by how many personal pronouns you're going to see. Me, me, my, 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 me, my, my, me. This is David saying personally to God, man, you're my everything. Listen, he says in, in verse 2, Oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Oh, my soul, my innermost being, that, that part inside of me that, that just reacts when things are going on. That part of me, my soul, he has said to the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. He said to the Lord, you are my Adonai. You're my master. What is it that, that kind of sets all the apostles apart and the writers of the, of the Bible at various times is that they call themselves James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And we look at that and we say, man, that's, that's so cool. He calls himself a servant. He's calling himself an abject slave. He's placing himself as a slave before his master. Think of all the things that implies. When, when does a slave go wherever he's going to go? When a master says go. When's a slave going to go to the left? When a master says go to the left. When a slave going to go to the right? When a master says go to the right. If you spend any time in the military, it's not a hard concept. Because sometime during the military, you somebody else told you everything you wanted to do. And things you don't want to do. And when they tell you all that and they, and, they, and they do all those things, something inside of us fights against it. Now, here's what it says in the New Testament. No one can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And we want to make that if I say Jesus is Lord, then that's the Holy Spirit in me? Yeah. If you say Jesus is your master, if you can say Jesus is my master and I am his slave, that's a sign the Holy Spirit is within you. All the apostles do it. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, that is, Jesus is my master. And I am his slave. Oh, my soul, my innermost being cries out to, to Jehovah, to Yahweh. You are my Adonai. You're my master. This is a king of Israel <laughs> talking. Kind of mind-boggling. He is my Lord. Then, my goodness is nothing apart from you. 
So the psalmist declares, I have nothing good in my life but you. You are my greatest treasure. My greatest treasure is more valuable than my grandchildren. That's a lot of value. Doesn't mean my grandchildren have less. Just means God has more. You are my greatest. That's what he's declaring. He is my greatest treasure. There's no, I, can, I can live life on this world without all those things as long as I have him. Is that how you see your relationship with God? Man, that's, that's where the real relationship is. The, the challenge that we had, I, I forget how long ago, but we had a challenge a while back. If you could have heaven with every good thing, you were guaranteed all your family would be there. You'd have all the stuff that you ever wanted. Everything will be there, but you won't have Christ. No Jesus. If we take that, and we don't have Jesus. If we don't understand the treasure and the value. We are treasuring other things. We are treasuring His gifts and His goodness more than the giver. And that's not a great place to be in. It's not a great place to be in. He said, my goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Loving the brethren, the people around Him who also call on the name of the Lord and consider God to be their master. Man, I, 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 uh, as for all the saints on the earth, man, they are excellent ones. I, I delight in my brothers. I delight in my sisters. It's not, oh man, I, I don't mind going, but I hope I don't see that brother. Man, what a pain in the butt he is. I delight. I delight in the, in the people of God. I delight in them. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. That word, that phrase, who hasten after, is the idea of chasing after a wife. That's literally the picture. He will, he will uh, have his sorrows hastened who is chasing after another God like you would chase for a wife. That's a lot of people looking for pleasure in a lot of places and not willing to look for that pleasure in the Lord. To be satisfied by that which is truly all satisfying. They hasten their sorrows, or their sorrows will be multiplied. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor will I take up their names on my lips. Literally in verse 4, he's saying, man, I, I love God. He's my greatest treasure. And so I am making sure that I am remaining separate from the world. I'm not offering their offerings. I'm not chasing what they're chasing. I'm not going after what they're going after. I keep myself separate. Uh, that phrase simply is being holy. Be ye holy as I am holy. Set apart, holy other, completely given over. I am going to, or I want to, or I long to keep myself separate. I'm, I'm 
the Lord's and He is mine. In verse 5, he continues on the idea of the treasuring of the Lord. He says, O Lord, O Yahweh, You are the portion of my inheritance and my cup, and You maintain my lot. He's saying, You, God, You are my future. You're more my future than anything else. You're my inheritance. That's greater inheritance that I could give my kids than any amount of money. If I could give my kids millions and billions and trillions of dollars, it wouldn't help them as much as if they have a relationship with the Lord. That's what he's saying. You're the portion of my inheritance. You are my cup. And you maintain my lot. I, I, I'm just looking to you, God. You give me what I need, and you take away what I don't. He's His treasure. Man, He gives me the things that I need. The, the lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. The lions is a, it's the idea of, of working out your inheritance in the land. And they lay out the lions. Oh, that's fallen. I got the best part. I got the best pieces. They have... They have fallen to me in fruitful places. And I have a good inheritance. If all I ever get is Jesus, is that enough? Or i got to have Jesus and something else. Is all I ever get is Him. I remember, I remember being young. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I love Jesus and all, but I want to get married. I want to have a wife. I want to know what that's like. I want to have kids. I want to watch them grow up. I want all that other stuff. There's nothing wrong with wanting those things. That's not bad to want a family, to want children, to want to see your grandkids grow old. Longing to do that is not a problem. Stop turning it around. I'm telling you to love Jesus more. I'm not telling you to sacrifice all those things. Oh, you can't, you're never going to get married and you can't have no kids and, and your grandkids, they all got to get leukemia and everybody's got to suffer and die and cancer everywhere and everything's got to be bad and all you have is Jesus. I'm just telling you, take Jesus and put him higher than all your desires and dreams in life. You desire all that stuff? Praise God. You desire a good thing. Put Jesus above it because He's even better. That's what I'm telling you. Don't lower all your expectations. I'm telling you to raise Jesus above them. That's not the same thing. But that seems to be our tendency whenever we talk about the treasuring Christ. That somehow, in order to treasure Christ, I've got to bring everything else lower. No, you've got to put Jesus higher. Where He belongs. The highest of all. He says in verse 7. He's going to list out for us. One, two, three things. Three main points. That we gain or enjoy when we have God. So to have God is to enjoy His. And the rest of the Psalms is going to fill in in the gap. 
To have God is to enjoy His. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. To have God is to enjoy His guidance. He guides me. He counsels me. My heart, my innermost being, corrects me at night. You ever had that happen? Oh, come on. I'm going to go to bed, I'm tired, and all of a sudden, some issue comes up and you can't sleep. You never had your heart tell you, there's a, there's a problem, hey, a problem, problem in your life you need to deal with before I'm going to let you go to sleep. That's what he's talking about. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. When I can't sleep, my heart instructs me. Guidance comes from the Lord, His counsel. I enjoy His counsel because I have God. Next, I have set the Lord always before me. Always before me. Where are you going? Where are you going? I have set the Lord always before me. Whatever I'm doing, wherever I'm going, I can always set the Lord before me. Man, I just really, 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 really want to get married. I really want to get married. Well, before you chase off after that dream, you better set the Lord before you. Or you're going to do something dumb. For the desire of a relationship, you're going to link yourself to somebody you shouldn't be linked to. You will be yoked unequally. Because you didn't put the Lord before you to guide you toward that dream. You put your dream before you. And you put the Lord on the shelf. And you chased the dream. And you settled because you thought, oh, I'm never going to have what I really want, so I'm just going to have what's in front of me right now. And then later on you're going to curse God because He somehow let you do that. You put Him on the shelf. If you take God off the shelf and you always put Him before you, He'll bring you to right relationships. If you're in a bad relationship, He'll, he'll make it better. But here's the key. You put God there first, not second. The Lord is always before me. I'm always headed toward the Lord. I have dreams of whatever. I've got dreams of, of success and, and prosperity in, in a job. And I'm not headed to a job and hoping I can bring God along. God, you've got to come with me. I'm going this way. I put God before me and I head toward my dream. Do you get the difference? I put God before me. I head toward my dream. The Lord is always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. The second thing, when I have God, I enjoy His stability. He is at my right hand, I won't be moved. The right hand, that's a place of honor. That's a place of strength. That's where the sergeant of arms is. That's the one who protects and takes care of you. Well, He can't only do that job if you put Him before you. If you put yourself before Him, He's able, but He won't do it. You've got to learn. i got to put God before me. He's always before me. In front of me, leading me into all those things, into all of those desires. He brings stability. 
Therefore, because He brings stability and guidance, because He is all these things to me, He's my treasure, He's the one thing I truly need in life, He's all these things, therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices, and my flesh hopes. Man, does that sound like a rotten thing? Somehow, growing up, my kids always thought it was a cosmic killjoy. Now, boys, you need to put the Lord first. Oh, man. I just really want all this really good stuff. I want to smoke out a pot I can. If I put God first, I can't do that. Maybe if you can't do it with God, it's not a good thing. No, 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 it's good. There's nothing wrong with it. Really? Yeah, whatever. The the myriad excuses that, that can come, the struggles that they go through and struggles that they have. But what does the Bible say if I put God first, always before me? My heart is glad. You know what I can always tell somebody who's living in sin? Their heart ain't glad. I don't care what is coming out their lips. You know what else isn't? Their glory doesn't rejoice. Their heart is not glad, their glory does not rejoice, and their flesh does not rest or have peace in hope. Because something else is before God. Look, it's not brain surgery, it's the truth. I want to be glad and I want to be able to see my glory, my desires, my being rejoicing in God. And I want to be able to to recognize the hope of the future in my flesh. And God is first before me always. Always who I'm headed toward. Whatever I'm going, whatever direction I'm headed, whatever. I always told my kids, man, I'm not here to rain on your dreams. What's your dream? What do you want? Then go get it. But as you head toward that dream, you make sure that God's before it. Not on the shelf. You take God with you to your dreams. Because then He will guide you. Then He will direct you. He has hope in his flesh. And then he has this incredible scripture. For you shall not leave. What's that What's that pronoun? My, right? You shall not leave my soul in Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew word for the grave. It's In, in the Greek, it's the word Hades. You're not going to leave me in death. Death is not the end. It's personal. David is saying, I am not going to stay in the grave. I am not going to stay in the grave. And then the Holy Spirit ministers to him and he writes the second verse. Look what it says. Nor shall you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Who's the Holy One? Messiah. Holy One is synonymous always throughout the Old Testament with Messiah. What's the Greek word for Messiah? Christ. That sounds familiar, right? Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah. So you will not allow your Messiah to see corruption. 
So you mean Messiah is going to die? Isn't that the context of what we're talking about? He said, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. You're not going to leave me in the grave. And you won't let your Holy One, the Messiah, see corruption. Do you know what that means? That means he has to rise from the dead in three days. Because day four is the day of corruption. Oh, you don't remember? When Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, died, and Jesus went to him, and he, she said, oh, it's been four days since he died. He's in the tomb. He stinks. You know what that word is? He's corrupt. The body's begun to decay. He said, you will not allow your Holy One, the Messiah, will not see corruption. He'll die, but he won't see corruption. That's why when you read the, the tale in, in uh, Matthew, it says he rose on the third day. Or if we look in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 or in Acts, he rose in, on the third day according to the scriptures. You're going to say, why did you say that? We just read it. The Messiah will die and not see corruption. He says, I got hope. I got hope. I'm going to die one day, but you're not leaving me in the grave. What's he hoping in? Resurrection. I will see God. I will see His face and not another. You will show me the path of life. So we, if I have God, if I have God, I, will, I can enjoy His guidance, I can enjoy His stability, and I will enjoy His resurrection. Anybody looking forward to a new body? If you aren't looking forward to a new body, just give it a couple of years. Don't worry. It's coming. Everything hurts, man. Sleeping used to be easy. I just go to bed. Nothing hurts sleeping. Now, tell me where you, how you're supposed to sleep so it don't hurt. If you're young, you're like, what are you talking about? Just wait. All them things you did, all them dumb things you did when you was young, and they don't hurt you at all right now? Well, when you're 50, they all start reminding you. I know it, it'll get worse. Every year, John's got to be dying when he goes to bed. <laughs> that old body, <laughs> that old body just hurts. I, I'm hoping, I'm looking forward to enjoying the resurrection and the fourth thing, I'm looking forward to eternal bliss. Look what he says. You will show me the path of life, the way to live. Does God show us the way to live? And we're not always listening, but he shows us the way to live. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand, what's it say? Pleasures forevermore. Being with God is not, you know, somehow not quite as good as all the stuff you thought was going to be so great in life pleasure forevermore eternal bliss eternal joy eternal rejoicing 
good and perfect things you can't even begin to imagine. He says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men the things God has planned for those who love Him. God has a lot of good things in store. So what do I have with God? Why would I want to put God before me? I have His guidance. I have His stability. I look forward to the resurrection of the body and eternal bliss in His presence. And all along the way in life's journey, I have Him guiding and directing to give me every good thing. The Word declares, God said, I will not withhold from you any good thing. So when we struggle with, why didn't God give me this? Because it's not good. How can it not be good? Because God said it ain't good. I I don't have a problem with that, do you? It's not all about me, is it? If God said it's not good, it's not good. Oh, I really want this, this relationship or that person. Or I really want my child to get better. Well, if God says no, it wasn't good. How can it not be good? It's better for your child to walk the road he's got to walk. She's got to walk. You trust God? Put Him before you always? His plan for you is good, not evil. To give you what? A future and a hope. So, if His plan for you is to give you a future and a hope, and the way to your future and hope is rugged, it's good. Isn't it? What if it's so scary, Jackie? It's so scary. I know I'm not trying to make it small. I'm just saying... God won't withhold anything good. So you trust Him and put Him before you. And know His plans for you are good. Even if the walk is hard, His plan's still good. He still has a perfect plan for your life. I was pretty sure I was going to get to 17 tonight. I think we'll have to do that next week. that okay? 17. We could. But I guarantee it's going to take me 15 minutes at least. Maybe 20. You're just getting warmed up. I know. I know. So as we work our way through, I just encourage you. I don't want to encourage everybody to, to try something. Especially if you're going through difficult things in your life. I... Uh, I know some people I've met with, and I've shared this idea with some folks, although I don't see any of them here tonight. The, the concept is learn to write your own psalm. Where are all them psalms born out of? Struggle, pain, difficulty. 
So if you don't have any of those things, don't do it. But if you do, here's what I would encourage you to do. Sit down. Get yourself a journal. But don't just journal in it. Open it up and lay out on the page of that journal your problem and all its ugliness or your pain and all its ugliness and the struggle and everything. Don't mince words. Don't hide behind some kind of holy speak. Just lay it out. The rugged truth, because that's what David does. Lay it out. I'm not saying be disrespectful to God. I didn't say that. I said lay out your hurt. Lay out your pain. Lay out your fear. Then when you finish, however many pages it is, or just a couple of lines, whatever it is, when you finish that, start a new paragraph and look to God. And I want you to describe Him. Who God is to you. And when you do that, put your pain and, and then beneath that you put your God. Going from A to B will lead you to faith. It'll just happen. Paragraph 3 will happen, just like it does in the Psalms. Lay out your fear, problem, big issue. Describe what, who God is to you what He means to you, just naturally. And then let that third paragraph sum it up for you. See where God takes you. Kind of helps us to always keep God before me. Right? Sometimes we get the problem in the way and we can't see God. We put God between you and the problem. And watch. Write your own song. A lot of songs that we sing and we love to hear on the radio had their birth that way. It's a pretty cool exercise. Try it. You might like it. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for this time we can come before you. Thank you for the work that you've done. You continue to do in our life, God, as we look to you. As we look to you as our hope, as our treasure, as everything that we're ever going to need. God, I pray that you would just help us to realize and to understand. So vital in our growth and development to have you in your rightful place. Everything else in life will make sense. It will come together. God, I just pray that you give us the ability to cling to you with everything that we have. And that you would be glorified and magnified through it all as we seek to honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.